one and we are recording with Miss Mitzi Purdue and Mitzi, what's your hat? This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Thank you for asking. Oh, I'm so proud of it. Ukrainian police. I was in Ukraine last week. I was the guest of the Kiev, or Kiev as they say, regional police, which is a huge territory. I bet it's tens of thousands of miles, but includes Chernobyl, which I visited. Oh, yeah. uh, Bucha, which you probably heard of the Bucha massacre. That's one of, oh, well, let me tell you, because if you don't know about it, then our listeners don't know about it. It's pretty famous in Ukraine. When... When the Russians tried to capture Kiev, uh, one of the first cities that they that they reached along the way to Kiev was Bucha, and they were committing war crimes right and left. The, I saw a mass grave that had somewhere around four hundred bodies in it, uh, and the bodies were typically civilians. These were people that you know they they just didn't. The Russians had no part of, of killing these people, but the point, as far as I can tell, was to demoralize the people and destroy their will to fight. And and uh, you gave me permission to monologue, so guess what? I'm going to do it. Ha <laughs> I love it. Perfect. Uh, impressions that I have of, of Ukraine, that, you know, it's just kind of hard to grasp that here in the 21st century, we're acting or people are acting so barbarically because the Russians have a very consistent approach to the areas that they've conquered. They, I mean, they're certainly going to go after military targets, but right after that police, because if you, if you're living in like Bucha or any place which the Russians have, have taken over, they want you as demoralized as possible, so they open the prisons. They let the, you know, the the worst people loose, and then say you have a store or an apartment, and somebody's looting. Yeah, whether it's Russian or a fellow Ukrainian, you can't call the police because the police have had their police stations bombed, and I've seen this. I mean, like they're rubble. They're, you, you can't possibly operate out of it. They destroy their, the police communication systems, and they also, uh, as fast and hard as they can, destroy all the police cars. So if you're living in, in a city that's occupied by the Russians, or even one that isn't, uh, you, you're going to have a lot of trouble with two forms of of trauma, and one is you know, your country's being attacked and bombed, and civilians are being killed, and second, it's lawlessness because the worst people are let loose from the prisons, and and I said that the that the Russians that their purpose is demoralization. They want to destroy the will to resist, and the way they go about it is you know first military targets, but then. 
smash every part of the ability of the police to function. Third, oh, actually, I'm not in order now. I'm just going to list some of the things that they go after. Schools. Now, why would they go after schools? Well, it's a very deliberate plan to show the residents of, of Ukraine that their government can't protect them, that what's most precious to them, they can't protect. So they bomb schools. They bomb hospitals. Uh, and then one of the most horrific things that I think I've heard of in my life is the Russians took orphanages. They took 200,000 kids from the orphanages, sent them to Russia, and now those kids are going to be brought up as Russians. And you might very well wonder, why Why would they steal the kids? Why would they inflict that much pain on the country? Well, the answer is Russia is losing population by hand over fist. Mm-hmm. Um, somewhere around, don't hold me to the, to the date, but I think somewhere around 1991, they had 100, the population was 168 million. They've lost 2 million people since then. And if you're, by the way, I could stop monologuing if you want. Please keep going. Okay. The the, the Russians, why, why are they depopulating so fast? Uh, people don't want to have babies there. So what can they do about it? And why does it matter? And why do they want to kidnap 200,000 kids? The answer is, if you're a country, you'd really like to have a lot of young people eventually working age people because somebody has to support the the elderly who are retiring and Russia is losing that. And so they, they have a very deliberate program of repopulation and the perfect group for this is the Ukrainians, because for the most part, they're ethnically similar. For the most part, they speak the language. They kind of look like everybody else there. It's, you know, if, if you want to repopulate because you need people to pay taxes and to support the elderly, yeah, Ukrainians are perfect. Well, the, you, you might think, if you're a Ukrainian, wouldn't you fight with everything that you've got to keep your children in your country? Because you face the same problem. You need young people who can support the elderly and who can, can, can be productive and pay taxes. I mean, you want those kids worse than the Russians want them. Mm-hmm. So why why would the Ukrainians give them up? And the answer is, I asked the head of, I asked General Nevitov, who's the head of the Ukrainian Regional Police, you know, how, how could you let the kids go? And he said, the Russians made their caretakers an offer they couldn't refuse. In occupied territories, they they went to the orphanages and they told the people in charge of the orphanages, we will see to it that every one of your little charges dies of starvation. We will simply cut off the food to them, and the water too for that matter, unless you let us take them now. Well, you know, the, the caretakers didn't want to watch their little charges slowly dying. So Russia, Putin really had made an offer that they couldn't refuse. But that's even that's not the end of the story. They got 200,000 kids 
And General Nebitov tells me that this is extremely well documented. They've got records of every single one of those kids, and they know pretty much where they're going. <coughs> Very often to the underpopulated places. I'm thinking Siberia in that region. Well, imagine, oh. But that's not the end of the story. After I learned about this from General, General Nebitov, but you can also read it in the Western press, it's, it's not secret. While I was there, an additional 1,500 kids were taken from the areas in the Donbass that, that border on Russia. And I'm probably going to cry when I tell this story because it's just so awful. Oh, I mean, it, the point of the story I'm about to tell is the Russians cannot be allowed to succeed in, in Ukraine. They can't win this war because we've got to get those kids back and we've got to stop more kids being stolen. While I was there, 1,500 kids in the occupied areas, their parents were told, uh, lucky you, your kids have been selected to have a respite from the war in Ukraine. You know, it's really hard in their nerves. They, they need some time, you know, sunlight games. We're taking them to Russia. And there was nothing that, that the parents could do because there's this nice guy with a AK-47 uh, who probably will kill you if you don't comply. Uh, the, the Russians in the Donbass area in the last couple of weeks made up with another 1,500 children. Well, I asked a social worker who lives in that area, and he told me, please don't use my name because if, you know, if it's known that, that I'm letting this information out, uh, I'll be on their list. I asked him, you know, the Russians have said, uh, you know, lucky you, your kids get to go to Russia. And there'll be games, there'll be, you know, it'll be like a wonderful camping experience. I asked, let's let's call him Andre, which isn't his name, although that is a good uh, Ukrainian name. I asked Andre, what are the chances of the parents ever seeing the kids, their own children, of ever seeing them again? And he said, we can go by the track record of, of Russia. We can go what Russia has done in the past. You know, un unless something, a miracle happens, those parents will never see their children again. And worse, well, I don't know what's worse than that, but added to, to the pain, they know from Russia's track record in the past that those kids will be brought up being told that their parents were fascists. They were horrible monsters. They'll grow up hating their country and hating their parents. Oh, you know, does it get much worse than that? How are they? Uh, Sorry. Okay, but I ended up. Um, I'm going to say. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott, or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day. At sax.com. Something really personal, and I'm a little bit afraid in telling this story that you'll think I'm nuts, and, and well, I don't know what you'll think, but we're friends, so I'll go tell you anyway. I have the most oddball reason for really believing that the Ukrainians are going to make it. I have a whole lot of serious reasons, military reasons. I, yeah, I, I talked with 
all sorts of officials in Ukraine, but I have an observation that I don't think anybody else has made. And here comes the wacko part, unless I'm right. I have the nail polish version of victory. No, no, I you're, you're, you're making a very puzzled face, which was the point. What could nail polish have to do with a country keeping its freedom and, and repelling its colonial masters? I mean, Russia's an empire, and yeah. they want to colonize Ukraine. And now to answer my question about nail polish and why you win, it's not that nail polish is combustible or anything like that. No, it's much more subjective. But to explain the nail polish theory of Ukrainian winning, Ukrainian victory, let's go back to World War II. There's a very famous psychologist. I think we could also call him a historian and a theoretician, but his name was Victor, Victor Frankl. And he wrote a book called From Death Camp to Existentialism. And he observed, because he was in German death camps himself, he observed that the people who had hope, who had something to live for, were the ones who lived. And he describes, I think I read it in, in his book. I could have heard it from another source, but here's the story that leads me to the nail polish theory of victory. Uh, in the death camps, there were people who were starving to death, people who should have weighed 200 pounds, who were weighing 130 pounds. And starvation, I'm told, is real agony. I mean, it's, you know, every, every bit of you tells you this is you know, terrible. But even so, there were prisoners who would save a few crumbs of bread to feed birds. And the birds would regularly come to visit them. And they had a moment of beauty in their life, something that, that gave, gave them respite, that reminded them that life can be worth living. Uh, and... Victor Frankl did say, now I'm sure I'm on firm ground now because I remember reading it, that the people who had something to live for, they were have to make it the people who just gave up where there was just nothing good in their lives. They didn't make it. Well, and we're now at the nail polish theory of Ukrainian victory. I noticed, to my astonishment, my first day there, uh, there was a beautiful interpreter her nails were beautifully done. And I'm thinking, you know, her country's being attacked. People she knows and loves are dying. Buildings that were part of, you know, in her city that were part of part of her life. You know, things that connected her to a normal life. They're rubble now. Oh, how can she be putting the effort into wearing nail polish? For the next five days, I made it my business to notice how many Ukrainian women were still wearing nail polish? And, uh, you know, I, I was in restaurants, I was in government office buildings, I was in regular office buildings, I was talking to everybody that I possibly could because I'm a journalist by trade. My estimation, and I'm ready to be wrong, but this is how it looked to me, I think 90% of the Ukrainian women were still clinging to normalcy and a respite from the ugliness and the evil going around them, they didn't just let themselves go. No, 
They were wearing nail polish, and they weren't just wearing nail polish. They were wearing fashionable nail polish. Like, it wasn't just red or black. No, they'd have different colors. And I thought that that represented a spirit of, we're not giving in. We're we're going to hold on to to the beauty that, that we used to know and that we hope we get again. And once I was developing that theory, you know, it's as if everything gelled, and I began seeing other things like, I was in, I was visiting a police training center that was at, it was 12 kilometers. And I think that means somewhere around like uh, eight, nine miles from the Russian border. It was a place where we could actually hear gunfire. Now the gunfire, possibly it was uh, practice. It may not have been, but it, it might've not been military, but I could hear gunfire. The police training center that I'm looking at, uh, it was completely gutted inside. There was like five inches of rubble on the floor and there wasn't a single light or window that hadn't been destroyed. Uh, yet one of the people who was who was there was examining the heat that had gone on inside that building to you know, all it's, it's you know it's even hard to describe a building that's completely destroyed. Oh, there, I mean, there's no possibility of, of working in that police station or conducting training sessions. You know, all, it, I mean, just rubble. And when, when you walk inside, you can smell just, you know, even four or five months later, you can smell the acrid burning. That, that building had, I think I'm being literal when I say it had been turned into a furnace. And when you go outside, you can see shrapnel all over where, you know, nearby walls of nearby buildings that uh, either shrapnel from explosions or maybe small arms fire. But the, the buildings around it are pockmarked. But then here comes back to my nail polish theory of victory. The chief of the training center showed me, you know, kind of around the corner from the destroyed building, a garden. The garden had beautiful, colorful, fragrant roses. I'm, I'm, you know, kind of eyeballing it. I'm thinking there might have been 25 rose plants there in the midst of despair, destruction, evil. It was a rose garden. And, you know, among the more moving things that's ever happened to me, the chief cut one of those roses and gave it to me. And, all right, back to the nail polish theory of victory. In the midst of what ought to be despair and horror, uh, all the people who were at this training center, maybe 25, they, they were accompanying me to the rose garden. And I realized that they're like, like the prisoners of war during World War II who would give breadcrumbs, even though they were starving, to have the beauty of a wild bird come. I thought that flower garden, the beauty of it, and, and even the pride of the man who was giving me one of those roses, I thought Russia has done everything it possibly can to destroy the morale of the people, you know, bombing the buildings, the hospitals, the schools, the police stations. They're not giving up. The ladies paint their nails. The men grow gardens. Is that not? I mean, they, 
somebody completely demoralized isn't going to grow a garden or paint her nails. You know, to me, <laughs> never before I thought of nail polish as a symbol of resistance. I mean, it's not that in my normal life. And I told you already that I was a little bit worried that you'd think that I was wacko. Am I wacko? No, not at all. I think it's actually a a brilliant indicator is a reason to live. Because I think yeah. it's that, you know, what else would it be? Beauty. Well, okay, then I have another observation. Back to monologuing. Uh, I was watching a bus trip from New York to Boston. I think it was a five-hour trip. I think there were stops along the way. It might have been roughly five hours. And the person sitting beside me was from South Korea. And I learned during the five hours, and trust me, this is going to circle back to nail polish for little takeaways. Uh, the guy who's sitting beside belonged to one of the great, famous, wealthy, powerful South Korean families. And I think the term is Koretsu. Uh, am I right on that? If I'm not, I'm not just, sure. Okay, if, if I'm not right, uh, I'm certain that we're talking about a powerful, rich, successful many generational family and he was like the scion of, of, of this family told me he had moved to the united states and i said how did that happen you know you had every privilege you could think of uh and and a, a loving family why would you give all that up and he said here's here's what happened uh my family sent me as wealthy koreans frequently do they sent me to a very good school in the United States, it was in New York. At the end of the four years, I discovered how much I loved New York. I loved the theater, dance, art, music. You know, it was just, it was a feast of, of culture that I'd never experienced before. He told me that his impression of his culture, and I'm not sure I would agree with him, but I am repeating what he told me. He said, South Korea has put so much effort into technology and economics and kind of the hard sciences and most of all commerce, that they didn't leave room for beauty. And he said, after he'd been in college for four years in uh, in New York, and he went back to South Korea, he said that it suddenly became clear to him that he couldn't live without beauty. And so now he's back in the United States. He has some kind of job that pays the rent, but uh, probably a pretty good job because, you know, he's fluent in Korean uh, and, he, and his background was economics. But he says it's just a feast of unending joy to to experience the beauty that New York has to offer. I mean, opera, dance, exhibits. He said that, and I, I'm, I'm, totally prepared to believe that he'll change his mind in a year, but at least at the point where I met him and talked with him for five hours, he felt that, that beauty made life worthwhile. And now back to the nail polish theory of victory. Uh, the Ukrainian women who are painting their nails in defiance, as far as I can tell, uh, they, there's some of what my Korean friend had to say, which is beauty makes life worth, li worth living. And so I'm going to stick with my nail polish theory of Ukrainian victory. 
river and uh, destroying monuments. Uh, they're just trying to break the Ukrainian people. They haven't done it. There are flower gardens and nail polish to prove it. Have you seen any more like abstract uh, reasons for victory? Okay, I I actually talked with one of the generals for a, a reasonable amount of time, and uh, I even visited I, I I visited battlefields with him, and I've got some really cool pictures of of him and me with a in front of a burned out tank with you know it's it's gun I at a guess it's a twenty five foot long gun barrel that's pointing at the camera and I'm standing beside this general. I mean that's you know it's I wish you could have been there, Tommy. I wish our our our, our listeners were because that's dramatic. But but you asked other reasons to think of victory. I learned stories of just so much cleverness. Because that area where, where where I saw a tank battle, the the Russians had such poor communication, or or maybe they had been deliberately misled. But a group of nine tanks got lost. The Ukrainians found out about this, and they carefully maneuvered a tank so that it was facing this oncoming column. And then they maneuvered another tank behind them. They shot the first, there are nine tanks. They shot the ninth tank and the, and the first tank. And uh, it was in a wooded area where it would be pretty hard for the tanks to, you know, escape. It was that the Ukrainians just ended or destroyed. And I saw them and I counted them nine tanks just by being clever. Or another one, I, I have a pretty strong opinion of why the Russians were unsuccessful in taking over Kiev. And, you know, I'll listen to any military strategist who tells me that I'm wrong, but here's what I saw with my own eyes. I mentioned a training center that was fairly close to the Russian border. Well, to leave the training center and get closer to Kiev, and I don't know how far away the training center was, uh, you know, easily a two-hour drive, but maybe it was shorter or longer, not sure. But to get from that training... Okay, there's the Russian border. There's the training center that I was. And then, and so that's you know, a, a real good entry point for, for the Russians if they want the shortest route to Kiev. So as we're leaving that training center, and I... I wish I could remember more the, the distances, but as as a rough guess, half an hour, stipulating that I'm probably wrong, but it felt like half an hour. We get to an area where there's a sort of rickety bridge. It will hold a car. You feel just a teensy bit uneasy because it's rickety, but you can be 100% certain that it wouldn't hold a tank. Okay, so what's this bridge over? And again, I'm, I'm, I'm eyeballing it. I'm prepared to be wrong, but this is what it looked like to me subjectively. We're on this rickety bridge and it's, it, it's a long one. It feels like half a mile. Uh, it, it wasn't two miles and it wasn't a hundred feet. It was 
somewhere in between, and I'm going to go with half a mile. Uh, you look to the left and you look to the right, and you're passing a lake. And how big is the lake? Well, again, I can't know, but it's as far as I could see, it extended to the horizon on both sides. So I ask, you know, where did this come? What's this all about? And here's here we get back again to the Ukrainians are just clever. There was a dam. The dam kept back water from very rich, productive agricultural land. It was, it was supposed to be a wheat field. Instead, it's a lake right now. They unleashed the dam, which meant that the uh, that the old bridge was pretty much... Uh, well, they, they didn't need a bridge. That the old route, the old road was flooded, and they built this rickety... I mean, it felt like a wooden bridge, but it probably wasn't. But uh, they flooded the area. The ridge, the rickety bridge hadn't been built yet. They flooded the area so that it was deep enough so that the tanks couldn't go through the fields that normally they would have just driven through. So what did they do? They, you know, they tried, but some of the tanks just couldn't make it. So they realized they had to do something else. And what they did was a five-day detour that flooding that land cost them. Five days of uh, of trying to have a nice surprise attack on Kiev prevented it. And you know, what, a, what a cool thing to do, to, to just block them for five days. And again, I'm not a military person. Somebody else could give a very different view of what happened. But from what I was told, it really looks as if Somebody was really smart blowing up that dam and flooding the road that would have been the directest, the most direct uh, route to Kiev. How much U.S. involvement do you think there is? Do you think it's more than just more than just funding and weapons? Uh, I don't know anything directly from my hosts. Yeah. Uh, on the other hand, uh, I do have friends who are military who sort of wink, wink, say that, yeah, there's a lot of training going on and whether it's where it's taking place, is it inside or outside, unknown. I also have heard uh, from, from sources that I'm really willing to respect that that the intel that we provide them is almost minute by minute, that there's just no place to hide. Oh, other things that I've heard that that make me ready to to go beyond the nail polish theory victory. By the way, I can hardly believe that I dared tell you it because I am aware that it sounds pretty. No, I think it, I genuinely think it's brilliant. Well, it could be right. In fact, how about it is? Because I'm thinking Napoleon said that, that morale counts for more than, more than training or weapons or territory almost. And I, I believe that, that the Ukrainians have it. High morale, uh, but but back to what people whom I respect say. Uh, now I'm wondering which to attribute this because I've got two stories. Uh, let's go with something that Ukrainians told me uh, that the Russians, the standard of living in Ukraine, a free country, is so much higher than it is for the Russian conscripts who end up there 
that that they're absolutely horrified because the Russian conscripts, and this was a sociologist who told me it, but he's a sociologist who is closely associated with the police department. So you know, he knows he's got a pipeline into what's going on. He said that the that the conscripts who come from Russia invading Ukraine, they're amazed that there's indoor plumbing. There's because the big cities of, of Russia, you know, they're pretty Western, but the rest of the country, according to my sociologist friend, my Ukrainian sociologist friends, the big cities of Russia are kind of westernized in 21st century. Get outside of the big cities and you're in the 19th century. There were people, according to my friend, I was think I think I was calling him Alexei. No, Andrei. Neither of which are his real name. Andre was telling me that they didn't even get what a washing machine was. They they were looting things that they didn't even know what to do with. And yeah, you know, what a culture shock for a, a Russian conscript to see that you know people in the country are just living very well compared to their standards. Uh, he also told me that they have they have recordings of Russians who who would shoot themselves like in the foot or the knee or something really painful uh, so that they don't have to fight. That the desire to fight Ukrainians among lots and lots of soldiers is just zero because the, the Russians and the Ukrainians, you know, once they were brothers, once they were, how to put it? I mean, they, they, that intermarry, the, the cultures are close. The language is different, but, but the cultures were close and the, the Russians, you know, they're, they're poorly fed, they're miserably led. And this is according to a Ukrainian source. So I guess you have to take it with a grain of salt, but I'm ready to gobble it up because it makes sense. Okay, that's that's reason to believe the morale issue from a Ukrainian source. But now let's go with the Western source, an American military source. His view is, that the Russians, the Russians never expected a six months war, so they didn't invest in a lot of training. They thought it was just going to be over in weeks. So the people who are fighting the war are very, very poorly trained. In many cases, they've got Soviet era weapons. Some even have like weapons from World War II. Oh, that they're they're just at such a disadvantage. Like he said, that many of them, uh, they they don't understand secure communications. Mm-hmm. So we can find out quite easily when General So and So is in the area and remove him. So I'm now I I have to just stipulate that I'm seeing one side of it from people that I've gotten to know and love, and. My view of it, I'm, I'm ready to be wrong, but this is sure how it looks to me, that, that the Ukrainians, they're fighting for their lives. I mean, many of them know that if Russia wins, boy, they're going to be the first to be shot. Yeah. Um, Andre, for example, um, or if you're in the police or if you're in any way resisting the... And then, you know, if 
if we were conquered, I'm, I'm being facetious with what I'm about to say, but if Canada conquered us, I think they'd treat us very well. They, they wouldn't just go bomb our uh, hospitals and schools yeah. and police stations. The Russians, when they take over a country, are much more horrible. Uh, in fact, how much of this is audio and how much is, of it is video? Because I can show a picture. Uh, it's it's both. It's both great. Then uh, allow me to reach for yeah. a picture. This is from the massacre of Bucha. Oh, wow. Is, okay. You, when I first saw it, I had no idea what it was, but I'll explain it. The You're seeing here a bunch. It's actually dead bodies. I think there are one, two, three, four, five. There, there are five dead bodies. The Russians, before executing them, shot them in the kneecap. Why did they do that? And this is on the subject of why you, you just can't give in to the Russians because they aren't going to treat you like the Canadians would t- treat us. Yeah, that's probably a pretty bad example, but oh well. Uh, but how the Russians are treating you know, their, their neighbors and in theory their friends, why would they shoot the kneecaps? Because the Russians, they have what's called filtration areas where they bring people that they want to have talk and they want to they want to know the Russians wanted to know such things as where munitions were, where trainings were, where um, you know just intelligence that would help them prosecute the war and or like where the mayor lives, or you know just anything that um, that would benefit them and harm the Ukrainians. If the Ukrainians didn't talk. Here's your kneecap, and you see your friend has just had his shot, yeah. and they're aiming a gun at you. And you know, I'd really like to know where the munitions uh, depot is. And you know, if if they don't, he's shot. Then they'll shoot the next one. Yeah. Um, so they're they're tortured before they're executed. I mean, they're just so barbaric. I was I was going to ask? It kind of answers my question. Is is there an inverse? truth to the nail polish is there a russian will to fight and on one hand it sounds like there's not if they're shooting themselves in the foot but then it also sounds like there might be if they're willing to be this barbaric well there have you heard of the wagner group yes let me tell you what i think i know about the wagner group in ukraine i've heard people call the wagner group this is, by the way, a private military that that pretty mm. much uh, reports to Putin. And in Ukraine, I've heard people call them Putin's children. They're pretty much, from what I've heard, made up of psychopaths. A lot of the people who are Putin's children uh, are people who are let loose from the prisons. They're people who actually seem to like behaving barbarically. Uh, I was told, for example, that uh, I had a lot of police protection while I was there. And I think it had something to do with the Wagner Group. The protection that I had pretty much at every moment was at least four police with AK-47s. Jesus. Wherever I went, 
wherever I went, it would be in a police, uh, what's the word, motorcade? Yeah. Uh, there, there would be a police car in front of me with flashing lights and a police car behind me. And uh, yeah, the, my son asked me, uh, yeah, was there any time that you were scared? And the answer is yes, but not what you'd think. Uh, I was scared because we'd be driving through villages. At, uh, I think if I read the speedometer right, that we might have been going at 80 or 90 kilometers an hour where you're supposed to be going 30. Jesus. Okay, why were we doing that? Because uh, the Russians have the, or maybe the Wagner Group has the ability to track the car that I'm in. And what they would really like is uh, they get a lot of money from kidnapping. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I was, as an American from a business family, I absolutely I was regarded as uh, high value. I love being high value, but eh, that's not the kind of high value I dream of. But, okay, so for being scared, it was going through uh, villages very rapidly. But the reason to go through rapidly is if you go s- slowly and there's somebody who's got this nice uh, rocket where you dial in uh you know, where it's supposed to land, um, if you go slowly, they could figure it out. And I was told again by people that I trust that actually there were people watching the whole time. And by the way, even even at night, you know, in my hotel room, there was uh, a police bodyguard outside my room all night. And I was given all sorts of directions about for operational security. You know, I know more about that than I ever expected to know. When when we left Warsaw, uh, which is, oh, I'm so bad at geography, but uh, several hours from the Ukrainian border. Three, maybe, but don't hold me to it because I'm not sure. But anyway, several, from the time we left Warsaw, until the time, like six days later, when I'm back in Warsaw, my cell phone, first of all, it was off. Uh, Second of all, the battery was drained. Third of all, it was in a Faraday bag. So if some little stray, um, I don't know, what's what's the word? I think it'd be like EMF. It'd be some oh. EMF signal or something. Yeah, so something where somebody could geolocate. Uh, you know, this was not to be. And the same thing for my iPad. And it was oh, even my even my iWatch, anything that would would enable geolocation. Uh, it was drained battery, or in the case of my mobile router, uh, battery removed. So I've got this Faraday bag with everything that. Oh, I'm used to. I mean, I didn't know I could go that long without my eye toys. But but in any case, they, they all had to be out in a Faraday bag because because of OPSEC. Yeah. And then other other kinds of things that I was instructed to do. Oh, I've got a story for you. Because I, I know you like high-tech stuff. Uh, I was instructed when I was talking with people, I was instructed... Uh, you never know who has come up to you and just wants to chat you up, that they might be an FSB person, mm-hmm. that's the Soviet spies. And I was told, 
Don't ever give any personal information. You do not give your name. Uh, you don't say where you're from, but you're not rude. You you have a story. Um, now, where are you from? Oh, I'm from the West Coast of the United States. I mean, they know you're from the United States. Um, but what city do you live in? Oh, I just travel around a lot. I'm, I don't really live in one city anymore. Um, what What's your profession or what are you doing here? Oh, I really care about women and children, so I'm here for humanitarian aid. And yeah, just stuff that is so general. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, I initially um, thought, oh, this is kind of extreme. Um, it can't, I mean, I, I obeyed it because I'm a nice person, but, but it seems kind of far out. But then I, I recommend this experience to anybody who's doubtful about how well communications tracking works. The first night there, there was a pool, and that's point of origin of a uh, of a missile attack, and that meant rush to the uh, to the bomb shelter in the hotel as fast as possible. And by the way, we had been warned, and it turned out to be really good advice. Although you know, when I first heard it, I thought it was overkill, and I don't anymore. We were told uh, that when you hear the air raid siren. Uh, you have your go bag, which, you know, in my case, it was like a briefcase, and you have in it medicines that you might need. Um, and that's pretty much it. I mean, I, in my case, as a journalist, I could have a notepad and, and a pen. But they said, when you hear the air raid, you, you got minutes to be in the bomb shelter. So just grab that and, oh, yeah, yeah your documents. You need your documents in your go bag. And, and making money. But you don't think you don't do anything except grab your go bag and rush to the bomb shelter. Um, so air raid the first night. And an air raid doesn't mean that it's heading towards your hotel because although they know there's been a poo point of origin, they know where it's coming from. They don't know the POI, which is the point of impact. You know, it could be anywhere in, in all of Kiev. And I'm not terribly worried because Kiev, yeah, it's got a population of several million. And the chances of a rocket hitting me, it seemed to me, were really small. So I wasn't, I wasn't personally worried. However, the next day I saw an exhibition of why it's important uh, not to give personal information of any sort, just you know, generic stuff. I was with a couple of American intelligence people and it's over dinner and it's in a fairly secure area and I know who they are uh, you know they've, they've been vetted so it, it's okay to talk with them although if if it were in a restaurant and other people could hear I, I this conversation wouldn't have happened they almost uh, felt like a parlor trick although it was deadly serious they've been in the bomb shelter also I think there were 20 people in the bomb shelter, and I'm not sure how long we were there. 30 minutes, an hour. We actually went twice because there were two air raid sirens that night. Now, here's the part that, and I shouldn't use the word parlor trick, but it was kind of amazing as if it was a trick. Uh, They pulled up the Facebook pictures of every person there. 
but the people there hadn't told them their names or where they were from or much of anything. Because as far as I could tell, everybody else in the bomb shelter had been coached to yeah. say kind of generic things. But these uh, intelligence specialists could trap, could tell me and sh- I, you know, they could confirm to me that, that, they, that it was accurate because I would see the picture of, oh yeah, that guy, um, you know, with the beard, there he is on Facebook. They knew who he was. They knew, and they knew a ton of other stuff about him. Uh, how they did it, I have no idea, but I'm a witness that they did it. And and by the way, they, they this was just very like a game to them because, you know, I could get this guy in two minutes. Oh, this little girl, half a minute. Yeah. So how does that, how does all of that now, I guess in the final couple minutes, how does that all affect how you think the outcome will, will be determined? Do you think it's going to be, is it going to be another six months? Is it going to be a resounding victory? Is it going to, are they going to squeak by? Okay, I'm afraid that there's going to be some wild cards. Like, uh, my impression that that Putin is a psychopathic thug, which you would expect from his background in the KGB. I mean, he's not held back by, by caring about life or fairness or justice uh, or the rule of law. I, I see him as a rat cornered in a bathtub. The rat can't get out, but boy, you stick your hand in and he's going to bite. Yeah. Uh, my impression is that that there could be some horrible surprise of a nuclear sort, um, including um, I'm going to pronounce it wrong, but the Zaporizhia, the 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 nuclear plant uh, that Russia controls right now. Uh, I I could see Russia. I could see Putin rather than just saying, "Oh, I lost." I could see him going to any extreme that that would benefit him. Mm-hmm. I, I really want to be wrong on this, but I, I don't see him going quietly because, to him, power and success. I mean, I, he's got to have a personality somewhat like Hitler. Uh, I mean, I think Hitler would have brought down the whole world if he could, mm-hmm. and. Uh, I don't have a more favorable opinion of Putin. However, if uh, that that's one terrible outcome, a nicer outcome is I'm hoping for a coup against him. Because, uh, I mean, if I mentioned earlier in our time together that Russia is facing depopulation and that, that's a catastrophe for a country because if you don't have, you know, if, you're, if your population has aged so much that the working people can't take care of the elderly and you're, if, if your population is just shrinking and people are leaving as fast as they can. I've, I've read that 500,000 people have left Russia since the war. Uh, I mean, he's... the. The Russians around him have to be aware that that he's leading them over a demographic cliff, yeah, uh, and an economic cliff. Oh, oh, I do have some more information on uh, from from being there. 
in the West, as far as I can tell, everybody believes what Putin says, that uh, the sanctions aren't hurting us that much. But from what I've heard, the I mean, Putin just says, oh, the price is going up of oil and we can sell it to India and China. But what I think the, the West isn't taking into account enough is that the pipeline to that would enable their their oil to go to China and India, it can only carry 10% of their production. Uh, so you have to send it by ship. It's a 70-day round trip. I mean, that's there aren't enough ships to do this. Russia in fin, on the Finland border is, I've heard, flaring off something like 10 million gallons a day because they don't have a place to store it. And if you allow it to like build up, it can crack the plant, the uh, the pipes. Uh, you can shut it down, but the last time they shut it down in nineteen eighty nine, because of yeah, oil fields work really well when when there's a somewhat constant flow. When when you shut it, there are cracked pipes. There's um, I've read that it it took almost between nineteen eighty nine and like a year ago, to resume uh, oil uh, flows at the state that that they had 30 years before. Uh, So Russia's in a world of trouble. And you'll hear people in the West, I hear them all the time, saying that, uh, well, look, the ruble's still firm. Russia must be doing great. Uh, The view I get from Ukraine, not so much. The ruble is pretty much a fiat currency. Uh, it's not freely traded. They can just say it's something that sends well, no. And oh dear, I'm running over my time. Oh, I didn't even realize that. Thank you. Miss Mitzi Purdue, uh, you are yet again a badass. I had no idea that that's all you're doing in Ukraine is bomb shelters and Faraday bags and motorcades and OPSEC, but I can't say I'm surprised at all. I feel like well, that's, by the way, that's it, I, I'm 81 and really proud of it. I love being a war correspondent at 81. Woo-hoo. Fantastic. And by the way, please, uh, please look for articles that I'm writing. Uh, the, there's one that just came out today uh, in Psychology Today, and it tells. Oh, I want another three hours, Tommy. It, it tells about about human trafficking in Ukraine and how it's, it's just a bonanza for the traffickers because the police are out of commission. Can you link me the article? Can, uh, yeah, I will. Well, then I'll put it in the description. Perfect. Anyway, invite me back or I'll come haunt you. Yes, ma'am. You can't haunt me, Mitzi. I love you. So (laughs) you can never haunt me. Thank you so much for coming on Mitzi. I will text you in the episodes up and please text me that article and I'll put it in the description. I'll do it right now. Thank you so much, Mitzi.